From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to the flu season, scientists in one hemisphere keep an eye on the other, and that may be bad news this year. Yeah, the southern hemisphere, especially Australia, had a particularly bad flu season during the winter of 2017. On today's program, we'll talk about the flu season and the flu vaccine with a Mayo Clinic expert. Yeah, it's shaping up to be a pretty miserable season, so we highly recommend that everybody age six. Six months and older, everybody get an influenza vaccine every year. Also on the program, women's heart health. And a heartwarming story about altruistic organ donation. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it's that time of year again, Tracy. And we're unfortunately not talking about the holidays. It is flu season here in the United States. You haven't had it yet, have you? Uh, possibly. <laughs> really? Yeah. Over oh. Thanksgiving? Oh. Well, when we you were have... in California, <laughs> I think I was ill and with the flu. Well, we should have had the doctor on a month ago. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, influenza, as you probably know, is a contagious respiratory or, or lung or breathing infection. And it's an illness that's caused by viruses that can, well, as you know, make you miserable. A fever, chills, cough, headaches, all common symptoms of the flu. I had all four of those. <laughs> you, probably, yeah. you probably had it. I know. Seasonal influenza in the U.S. usually peaks between December and February, although flu season can vary from year to year. And experts are worried that this could be a particularly bad year. Is that hype? Is it fake news? I don't know. <laughs> We're going to find out. Here to discuss flu season is the head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group, Dr. Gregory Poland. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Thank you. Good to be here. I can hardly look you in the eye and admit that I just got my flu shot this morning. An hour ago, <laughs> I got my flu shot. Well, you know, don't feel bad about that because we do say to people, get it as soon as it comes out. But you made a very important point. The peak of our influenza season in the U.S. is typically between December and February, March time frame. So the point is it's not too late to get it. And remember, when you do get it, it takes about two weeks to get that peak of immunity. So we don't want to wait any longer. So I guess that brings up the question, what do we know about the flu season so far and the effectiveness of the vaccine? Yeah, it's shaping up to be a pretty miserable season. Um, there has been a lot of influenza A circulating sporadic in different parts of the country. Um, as best we can tell so far, a good match uh, with the vaccine. So we highly recommend that everybody age six months and older, everybody get an influenza vaccine every year. I thought I had heard that the Australian version, so the other half of the planet, yeah. it was not a good match. Was I hearing that story well, wrong? There, we do see different strains circulate in the northern and southern hemisphere, mm -hmm. so that can very well be the case okay. from even within the season. We can have something. I remember one season where we got to December, and all of a sudden we had a major change in the strains that were circulating, hmm. making the vaccine in the first half of the season pretty effective and the back half virtually ineffective. Yeah, it's a tough guessing game, isn't and, it? And it's a constant, you know, influenza, I, the way I explain it is influenza viruses are like a cesspool of promiscuous viruses. They are constantly <laughs> 
mutating and changing. So, you know, we do pretty well now that we include four strains uh, in the in the influenza vaccine. And what I think is exciting this year is we have some nine different types of influenza vaccine. We have really started in this era of personalized vaccinology, just like we talk about individualized or personalized medicine. We have a vaccine that's meant for people that have egg allergy. We have a vaccine that can just go under the skin for people that are afraid of injections. And we have two vaccines, one just released for people age 65 and older, so older people. One is called the high-dose flu vaccine, and this newest one is an adjuvanted vaccine, meaning that there's um, material put into the vaccine that boosts the immune system. And this is really important because 90% or better of the deaths and the hospitalizations that occur due to influenza are in people age 65 and older. So this is really a, a boon to preventing influenza and all the misery and complications that occur because the standard flu vaccine didn't work very well in older people. And you said that was just released? Just released this so it's past a good, year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've had it this whole season. Yes, it's been available this and season. And if you're over 65, you're automatically going to get that? Well, uh, not not every pharmacy necessarily carries it. So I always tell people 65 and older, I want the vaccine, one of the two vaccines meant for older people, the high dose or the adjuvanted. And But we have it here at Mayo. I don't know whether we have the adjuvanted vaccine in stock yet or not. You better go check your record. <laughs> yeah. I don't want you to get the flu again this I year. Actually, I haven't had it yet, but I'm <gasps> in a day or two. I'm going to get it. So at least you didn't give me the flu. So, well, so far, I'm glad I'm, you I'm mentioned okay. it. I brought a couple with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will take him by the hand, and we will go from here to get that done. There are a lot of misconceptions about what, quote, the flu is. It's not... GI problems, diarrhea, or a little nausea. It's not a little nasal sniffle. Influenza in its uh, full form is a very sore throat, fever, and just profound muscle aches. I mean, literally, you don't want to get out of bed. And the problem is complications related to that. I'm aware of a case, actually, was a young man from our church, nine nine or ten years old, healthy boy. Went to bed one night, came home early from school with influenza, and he had died during the night because it had affected his heart. So we think of this as such a benign disease, and thankfully, most often it's just a a few days of misery. But unpredictably, it can cause really severe complications, hospitalizations, and even death. You know, before we talk a little bit more about uh, treatment and what should you, you should do if you do, in fact, get the flu, I want to ask you about the nasal uh, spray. Yes. The CDC does not recommend that. This and, is, and the second, is that new and this, different? Or, this is and the why? second year that the vaccine has not been recommended, and the reason for it is studies showing that it has lost its efficacy. Mm-hmm. And the feeling is that when they added the fourth component, the fourth strain to the vaccine, that the manufacturing process, I'm only talking about the live nasal spray vaccine, changed sufficiently to weaken the strains in the Mm. vaccine such that they didn't protect. What about the news reports that say the vaccine this year is only 10% effective? 
I, I, I really fake dis- news. I, I really <laughs> discount those. And uh, in fact, ironically enough, we're submitting an article this week talking about when people talk about quote vaccine failure. You really it, there's a lot of parameters that have to be measured to say, you know, to make a statement like it's only 10 percent effective in in who, and 10 percent effective against the strains that are circulating or the strains that it's matched against. If it's matched against the strain, it's never 10% effective. It's 60 to 90% effective. The problem, as you're pointing out, is the mismatch strains. It's a little bit like saying, I got hepatitis B vaccine and got hepatitis A anyway. Hmm. Before we take a break, we'll come back and talk about other vaccine topics, vaccine-related topics, but how can people protect themselves from getting the flu? Three of the best ways I know. Number one, get a flu shot, okay? Number two, stay away from people that are ill. It sounds, you know, logical. And number three, keep your hands out of your eyes, nose, and mouth and wash your hands regularly. And you know, also, when we come back, I want to ask you about how to treat the flu. What did yeah. you do when you got the flu, and did you do the right thing? And also, I want to ask you about the man flu, because us oh guys get a lot sicker than you Here women. Here we women. go again, <laughs> the man flu. And when we come back, uh, myth or matter of fact question as well. Mumps cases are on the rise, even among those who were vaccinated. Myth or matter of fact, we'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Thanks so much for being with us. We are with the head of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Greg Poland, been talking about the flu season. We're going to talk about the mumps in a minute, and we'll get to that myth or matter of fact. But I want to know, if you got the flu, what would you do? Number one, I would stay home. Stay home. I knew that. (laughs) It's the hardest thing to do because, you know, our work's important to us, especially in the healthcare field. Sure. Um, But stay home and recover. Lots of fluids, uh, getting adequate nutrition. Now, there are antiviral medications that are effective. We give them routinely in people where we expect high rates of complications due to influenza elderly people, people with diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, etc. But they're available to other people too. And uh, uh, the main thing is that you have to be seen pretty early after symptoms. If you wait and you're sick four or five days and now you want to go to the doctor to get something to treat the influenza, really won't work. You can treat uh, complications of the influenza. That's where an antibiotic can come in. But we don't give an antibiotic to treat flu. We only give it to treat complications of flu. Because the flu is a a virus. The flu is a virus. How long was I contagious as I was going around, not really thinking and believing that I had the flu? You know, you're you're contagious for uh, a couple of days before you have symptoms. That is, you can transmit it. And for several days afterwards, while you're sneezing and coughing, kids even longer. Mm. Wow. So when is it safe to go back to work? What's the criteria you would yeah, I use think there? When you don't have fever and when you're not um, sneezing and, and spreading those, and usually that's going to be within two or three days. And then what? No fever for 24 hours 24 and then you, hours. Can, you can go ahead and go back yeah. to work? All right. One more thing about the flu. You and I know that when we get the flu, uh, us guys, we get sicker than the than the women Absolutely. get, and we suffer more, and we're not overreacting, we're not exaggerating, and of course I'm kidding in a way, but 
There was a story that came out. A Canadian researcher said, in fact, you are right. Men do get sicker. We don't get any sympathy for it, but men get sicker. Now, tell us about men's immune system Hold and vaccinations. On. Wait a yeah, second. I know you don't no, believe it. No, 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 but you Re- said I'm two gonna things. I'm going to bring you the, the paper. The, sicker? The no, I saw. I heard this, too. Sicker or suffer more? Are those the same thing? Well, I don't you know, know that they are, but we'll both, of, both of those words and the word sympathy start with S. <laughs> so uh, this is very interesting, Tom. I have not seen that article, but there's a biologic plausibility here because whenever we study the immune response, that is the antibody generated to a vaccine in men versus women, women always have better immune responses. We're better at it. So what that says is that for some reason, based on gender differences, men don't respond as well compared to women to vaccines. It doesn't mean they don't respond well, but compared to women, not as well. So it makes sense that if they got infected with a virus, that they're they have lower immunity and are likely to have more symptoms. Told you. So I don't think that's an outrageous claim. <laughs> we'll argue about this all the way to getting your flu shot when we're done here with this interview, okay? I'm going. Don't all worry. Right. I'm going to get it. Myth or matter of fact, mumps cases are on the rise, even among those who are vaccinated. Absolutely that correct. Fact, okay. Yeah, for, reasons, for reasons that are not particularly clear, unlike, you know, when we give the MMR vaccine, that's measles, mumps, rubella. Unlike measles and rubella, which you get those and pretty much have lifelong immunity, mumps isn't that way. And for reasons not particularly clear, the mumps component of the vaccine, after a period of time, probably only has about 50-60% efficacy. So where we tend to see mumps cases, if you think back over the last few years, colleges, sometimes the military, sports teams. Look at the outbreaks they had among the NHL. Yeah, don't play hockey. Yeah. <laughs> so getting a booster, a mumps booster, is what is the way to take care of this? Yeah, so um, we don't routinely recommend a third dose. Lots of thought and study has gone into it. Where we give a third dose, so everybody should have two doses, except for people like myself and Tom. We're so old. We had the diseases when we were kids. We really did. Yeah, we did. Uh, it's changed that much. Mm-hmm. So people, kids get it at age one month, I mean, sorry, one year, and then they get it before they go into school. If they're in an environment like a school where there's an outbreak, a college where there's an outbreak, then we give a third dose. All right. That's, uh, I want to ask you about the new shingles vaccine, yeah. which uh, uh, tell us about it. And is it available? I've had patients ask me and I've called the pharmacy and the pharmacist said, well, we're not aware of it. And so uh, is it better than our old vaccine for shingles? And when can you get it? Yeah. So I was involved uh, with advising the company scientifically about that. this just to, to make that uh, disclaimer. And so I know a lot about these two vaccines. The one that has been available is called Zostavax. It's a live, weakened form of the chickenpox virus that we give to people to boost their immunity. That probably only has about 60% effectiveness, and it drops by three years. This new vaccine called Shingrix will become available in the January-February time frame. It was just approved by FDA. It's recommended for Everybody over the age of 50, even if you got the previous uh, shingles vaccine, this vaccine, and it's been studied for about seven to nine years, is between 91 and 97% effective. 
And shingles is a common miserable disease. About 30% of all of us are going to develop shingles sometimes in our life. So if you've had Zostavax previously, you should go ahead, and if you're 50 or older, yeah. you should get the shin graft. Absolutely. And it should be available in January or January, February 2018. Early February is what we're expecting, yes. All right, uh, one other uh, vaccine I want to ask you about, because it's relatively new, um, been around for a few years, uh, but we know it's particularly effective in treating, uh, in preventing the human papillomavirus. Yes. An update on that one. Sure. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, what was released, is the nine valent, that is nine strains of HPV. HPV causes almost all of the uh, oral cancers, vaginal, uh, penile, anal, cervical cancers, in addition to genital warts, which we can treat symptomatically but cannot cure. Mm. The good news is we now can cover nine strains of that. Those cause most of the cancers. And for people that get it below the age of 15, only two doses instead of three. Ah, but the problem is not as many people as you would like and would recommend are getting it. That's unfortunately true. We really uh, recommend that people, before there's any chance of sexual exposure, which is how this is spread, so in that 13-year-old age group or so is the ideal time to get the vaccine. We can give it up to age 26. But after age 26, we are considered immunologically old in terms of this vaccine, and we don't generate immune responses that are as protective. The last time that you were here, we were talking about the Zika outbreak. Yes. So give us a Zika update. How's that research going? Um, our research is going really well. We, uh, with Mayo Clinic, are working on patenting some parts of the virus that they, we think are particularly important to protecting people, and we're working with Iowa State University to package these in a biodegradable nanoparticle. So we're hoping in 2018 we'll start uh, our animal studies and then go from there. All right, we've been talking about the uh, flu and other vaccine-related topics with the head of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Greg Poland. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. The final word, I guess, is make the best thing you can do to prevent the flu is get the vaccine, and if you're over age 65, get the senior dose. Absolutely. And that men suffer more when they get the flu, so men should you, especially Tracy. be sure to get their flu shots. And don't Excellent. forget to prevent shingles with a vaccine. Yeah, I knew we could get Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Boland. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss women's heart health with a Mayo Clinic expert. And later on in the program, a feel-good story about organ donation. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Is your glass half empty or half full? That saying is all about optimism, right? Well, research shows optimistic people have a positive outlook on life, and they tend to be healthier than their pessimistic peers. If you look at the connection of optimism to what the body does when we have positive emotions, it kind of makes sense. Dr. Rika Sood says optimistic people are less chronically stressed out, which helps reduce your risk of heart disease, some cancers, and depression. She suggests three ways you can be more optimistic. First thing is to want to do it. Reach out to people who are also optimistic or talk to your health care provider. Number two is to have a an ability to do a zoom-in versus zoom-out philosophy. So when the problems are overwhelming, it's a good idea to zoom out. 
and say, okay, there's a perspective. Look at the big picture. Think of what you are thankful for and that life as a whole is good. The other big one is to be intentional. Live in and concentrate on the moment. Don't ruminate about the past or worry about what happens in an hour. Dr. Sood says it's important to our health to reduce chronic stress. And in other news, does this sound familiar? You followed the usual tips for getting enough sleep. Sleeping on a regular schedule, avoiding caffeine and daytime naps, exercising regularly and managing stress. But still, it's been weeks and you can't get a good night's sleep. Is it time for an over-the-counter sleep aid? Here's what you need to know if you're considering medication to help you sleep. Over-the-counter sleep aids are not a magic cure. They can be effective for an occasional sleepless night, but be careful. Most over-the-counter sleep aids contain antihistamines. Tolerance to the sedative effects of antihistamines can develop quickly, so the longer you take them, the less likely they are to make you sleepy. In addition, some over-the-counter sleep aids can leave you feeling groggy and unwell the next day. This is the so-called hangover effect. Medication interactions are possible as well, and much remains unknown about the safety and effectiveness of over-the-counter sleep aids. So be sure to talk to your doctor or health care provider before you try over-the-counter sleep aids. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Do you know what the biggest risk to women's health is? I do because I've got the show notes here. Oh, that's right. You've been here too long. Cheater. (laughs) If your first instinct is to say it's breast cancer or cancer of the ovary, you would be mistaken, but you certainly wouldn't be alone. Statistically, heart disease is a way bigger health risk for women than cancer. In fact, heart disease is the leading cause of death for women in the United States. It, in fact, accounts for one in every four deaths. Twenty-five percent of women die of heart disease. Well, everyone can help prevent heart disease by eating a heart-healthy diet and exercising. Some risks and some heart disease symptoms are unique to women. Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Florida to discuss women's heart health is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Amy Pollock. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pollock. It's nice to meet you. Oh, so nice to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, Dr. Pollock, thanks so very much for joining us uh, from warm Florida. I'm <laughs> <laughs> thrilled to be here. Uh, so there are still a lot of women, aren't there, who who really fear cancer more than, than heart disease, but that's a misconception, isn't it? Well, and you know, I think it's important that we need to be attentive to, to both. I think that, you know, as women really being aware about the risk to our health in the chest region, both from breast cancer as well as from heart disease and stroke risk. And we've come a long way over the last almost 14 years since we've really had a national campaign to raise awareness of the risks of heart disease in women and how, as women, we can have some different symptoms of heart disease than than really our male counterparts may have. Well, the campaign has helped, hasn't it? I mean, more and more women are realizing that the biggest threat to their health is, in fact, heart disease. You're absolutely right, but we still have a huge way to go. And I think one of the things that's so important uh, for women, uh, for all of us to be thinking about as we're looking at how do we keep our hearts really healthy is, you know, is being attentive to any symptoms that we're having. So, you know, as a woman or even a male for that matter, if you're suddenly starting to get short of breath, if you're having a heaviness, a pressure in your chest, some symptoms that even go up to your shoulder, your jaw, Sometimes it can be something that seems almost like a toothache, um, pain in the, between the shoulder blades and the back. It can actually even seem like indigestion. Um, and if any of these symptoms are coming on, and this is not 
typical for you, all of those could be signs of heart disease. And they certainly may not be related to your heart, but if you're having a new onset of symptoms, it's so important to get those checked out. At least schedule an appointment to see your primary care physician, or if you're really worried, you know, go in to see a cardiologist, but not to just talk it up to stress or anxiety or heartburn, but to really make sure that you're being you know, attentive and getting the, the care that you need to understand what's going on with your body. I, I always like to find out how people got to where they are. So tell us how you got interested in cardiology. Well, you know, it's um, it, it really stems back to women in heart disease. So I uh, was graduating from college at the University of Virginia, and my grandmother, who had 10 children, the oldest of her 36 grandchildren, um, actually had a heart attack the day I graduated from college. And um, she had, this was back in um, 1999 now, so it was a different era of uh, understanding about women and heart disease. But she um, had been having symptoms of indigestion. And every time she went to walk, she would say, I'm getting this heartburn. And um, I think like most women who've had 10 babies, she carried a little bit of extra weight in her midsection. Her blood pressure was not ideal, had not been on cholesterol medication. And at that time, her provider said, you know, this is just heartburn. Lose some weight. Don't eat spicy food. And her symptoms progressed. And she actually had a heart attack that morning. I graduated from college. And um, she survived, thankfully. But it was a really eye-opening uh, to her and to, to all of us that her symptoms of heart disease were, you know, these what we call atypical symptoms of heart disease. But really, they can be rather typical for women. And um, and one of the things that really prompted me to go into cardiology and then do women's heart disease was, you know, not only wanting to help women identify if they're having symptoms that may be signs of heart disease, but also, and equally importantly, how do we prevent that cholesterol buildup from happening so that way you don't have to go down the path of having a heart attack? Obviously, we want to talk about prevention, but uh, let's talk about the risk factors because you mentioned a couple of that that your grandmother had, high blood pressure, and um, she was a little bit overweight. You're absolutely right. So things like high blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease, for cholesterol buildup, um, as is cholesterol, diabetes, tobacco use. Um, There are certainly family history hearts. So if you um, have a family history of heart disease, it's so important to then talk with your provider about how does that translate into your risk. And there are some tests that we can do to help try to understand that better. Um, but in terms of these, what the American Heart Association calls life simple seven, these are the seven things we should all be focusing on to try to lead heart healthy lives. And one of them is blood pressure control, uh, the blood sugar control, or knowing if you have diabetes. Uh, your cholesterol, avoiding tobacco use, maintaining a normal body weight, getting regular exercise. Uh, the seventh one is the heart-healthy diet, which we know really is essentially focused on what's called the Mediterranean diet, where you're eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, focusing on unprocessed foods, uh, lean proteins, things like healthy fats like avocados, walnuts, almonds, salmon, um, those sort of omega-3 fatty acid-rich foods, and, you know, complex carbohydrates, but really trying to avoid those um, unrefined um, kind of processed sugars, white breads, pastas, desserts, and 
have a big sweet tooth, so I'm uh, a proponent of a little piece of chocolate. But oh, it's chocolate. All about, Thank know, goodness you said chocolate. <laughs> it's all about little the, chocolate's you know, okay. <laughs> that's right. It's all about you know the portion size and, and that balance. You know, if you're going to have a, a roll with dinner, then probably avoiding the, the the dessert that night. And it's all really about the the portion size. And this is sort of holo- uh, the heart attack season, isn't it? Uh, at least for men, I think it's true that um, more heart attacks occur around the holidays than other times of the year. You're absolutely right. There are more heart attacks that occur around the time of the holidays. Um, and part of that is because of the extra stress that our bodies are under. Uh, and some of it's good stress. You know, we're traveling. People oftentimes are getting uh, viruses, colds, that it can increase inflammation and increase the risk of heart disease. People generally are drinking a little more alcohol than they otherwise would and have a higher salt diet. And it's that combination of the salt and the alcohol stress that can really raise your blood pressure around the time of the holidays that we think is one of the reasons why there seems to be a higher risk of, uh, of heart disease around the holidays. All right. So any of the symptoms that you mentioned, you ought to have them uh, checked out. And if nothing else, call 91, go to the emergency room if you're concerned, and don't be like Grandma. Unfortunately, Grandma survived. She did. Grandma survived, and she was then a wonderful advocate for women's heart health and just a fantastic role model to me and um, really... I know she would have rather not have had the heart attack, but I think that her story, I, um, I hope, has helped uh, many other women who um, maybe were having atypical symptoms like hers and, and decided to go in and, and get treated. All right. We're glad she did. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Women's Heart Health with cardiologist, heart specialist, Dr. Amy Pollack, Mayo Clinic, Florida. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have a feel-good story about organ donation. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Dr. Philip Fisher is a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic. Not long ago, he was leading some medical students on rounds, and they checked in on a patient who was waiting for a kidney transplant. You know the rest of the story. I do, and I'm excited to share it. Afterwards, some of the medical students started joking with Dr. Fisher about donating one of their own kidneys to get a better grade on that rotation. And that got Dr. Fisher thinking about his own place in this world and what he had to give. Here to share his story is Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Philip Fisher. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fisher. It's nice to meet you. Thanks. It's nice to see both of you. Great to have you on the program. So take us back to that day. And was it 2011 when this actually happened? About five years ago. Yeah, five and a half years Uh, ago. Normal rounds, normal everything. And I started to joke with the students and I realized this isn't funny. Um, We're talking about a serious thing. This child needs a kidney. We've each got an extra. Maybe we should get involved and do something and not just joke about it. And none of them volunteered? None of them did. (laughs) None of them did. And I decided I shouldn't put pressure on them. (laughs) (laughs) But you thought uh, it was a good idea for you. Yeah, somehow it stuck in my mind. I don't know what it was about that teachable or open moment. It just stuck on my mind for a while. I talked to my wife about it. I talked to a couple of friends who were doctors dealing with kidney disease. And my question for them was, is this crazy? Should I even think about such a thing? And it went from there. And well, what did your wife say? Yeah. yeah. Uh, she already knew I was crazy, so that was all right. <laughs> what about your colleagues? Did they know you were crazy? Yeah. Actually, on the crazy side of thing, if we fast forward, I had to go through all of this screening to make sure I was healthy enough. And part of that includes a psychiatry consult to make sure that I'm doing this for appropriate reasons. And the surgeon said, don't worry about the psychiatry thing. It's just a rubber stamp to make sure everything's okay. I finished the psychiatry discussion, and the psychiatrist said, 
okay, I think we need more information. I'll have to talk to your wife. Anyway, so my wife got her words in anyway. <laughs> Did you know at the time who the recipient was going to be? No. Um, the child that stimulated all this that needed a kidney had a different blood type than me. He ended up getting a kidney in a couple months after that before I was ready to donate. Um, so I went through the anonymous donor program. So I didn't know anything about my recipient. I think I heard that it was a female um, and knew it was a woman beforehand. I semi got to know her three months later when she sent me a thank you note, but she opted to keep it confidential and not sign it. So I learned a little bit about her in the thank you note, but I still don't know who it really was. I think when someone knows someone who needs a kidney, it's easier to say, yes, I will donate that kidney to you, or I will be part of a chain so that you can be a recipient of someone else's kidney. Mine will go to somebody else along the chain. But when it's just purely altruistic, did your colleagues say it really is okay to do this? It really is. You really will still be healthy. You won't um, suffer any uh, ill consequences. Yep. Medically, there was no concern. Hmm, okay. um, kidney transplants are done enough. People donate kidneys. It's safe enough. So I didn't sense any real concern. There. Sure, there's a statistical tiny risk anytime anybody has anesthesia, something bad could happen. But it's so unlikely that I wasn't worried about any real bad health consequences coming from it. The fact that I didn't know the person in a way made it nicer for me um, because it makes me be able just to do what I think I'm supposed to do and not have to know the outcomes or know the person or feel like I still owe them something or make them think they owe me anything. So you had the medical exam to make sure that you were healthy and that your kidneys were healthy. You saw the psychiatrist and he said, yeah, you're crazy, but go ahead. And <laughs> <laughs> Roughly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then then what happened next? Did you have to, uh, w- with regard to time off work, did you have to plan it so you could be off for a while? And so then- I had three weeks of vacation I wasn't using that year anyway. So I waited for December, just decided to do it at the end of the year. So I used my three weeks of vacation. They had told me that it takes about six weeks to recover. And I said, yeah, that's for other people, but I'll be fine in three weeks. I was crazy to think that. Um, Three weeks into it, I was not better enough. So I ended up needing to have some friends cover some work things for me. I should have believed them and scheduled to not be working full time for six whole weeks. So anyway, I had the donation, had those next three weeks off for vacation time just to lounge, and then needed some more time after that to get my strength back to really be back to normal. You really are a good guy. <laughs> I don't know about that. So you donated three weeks of vacation to the Mayo Clinic, and you donated your kidney. So it required a general anesthetic. And yeah. how long is the surgery? And and how much pain was there afterwards? Um, the surgery, I don't actually know. I was asleep then. <laughs> an hour. Uh, you hour you know half, operating maybe. rooms better than I do. I'm supposing it was an hour, an hour and a half. Um, so there, woke up that afternoon, um, spent that night in the hospital um, and went home the next afternoon. So it was just one night in the hospital for me, that immediate post-operative night. I think I might have had something for pain that day. I think I took ibuprofen once after I went home. Um, But pain-wise, no. For me, it was just tiredness. How Um, big is your incision? Um whatever this, four, three, four inches. So they do part of it through the scope, right? Yeah, they call it laparoscopic, but they have to get the kidney out. Um, So they work through their scopes and do it all through the tubes and the lines. And then to actually plop the kidney out, there's an incision from the belly button down that's big enough to let the kidney pop through that. Yeah, they put it in a sack and then pull it through that hole and go... When it comes out. Would you like to hear that again? (laughs) No, please no. Why is it that all 
all of a sudden now, six years later, we're hearing about this story. What, who is Max, and how does this? <laughs> what is the next chapter of this story? Uh, good question. Somehow, the, the initial question of why does somebody do that is really hard to answer. Related to that, I didn't want it to be about me, really. I decided I should do this, so I wanted to. But I didn't want to have to explain why, because it either makes me look odd or it makes me put pressure on somebody else saying, everybody should do this. Yeah, I'm looking uh, at you, Shaz. Yeah. <laughs> so it was about a year before I thought I even wanted anybody to know about it. So a pastor knew and some close friends knew and the family knew, but others know. And the few colleagues that had to help me out for those three weeks when I was getting my strength back and missed a few clinics. Uh, about a year later, I was talking to somebody, and they said, you know, there are a lot of people that need kidneys, and if you would mention what you did, maybe it would encourage people to donate. So a year afterwards, I did do a little interview thing, which was published in a, some Mayo publication, I think. A couple of news places around the country picked it up, and somebody in Canada, and then they put a big ethical debate on it when they wrote about this. Um, so there was a little of that, and then a few months ago, the Mayo alumni group said, we need more kidneys, let's talk to the two Mayo doctors who have given kidneys mm. to to strangers, to unrelated people. And so they talked to each of us, that turned into the alumni magazine you mentioned. If we take it farther to Max. I should, well, this is on the air. We're all friends. Yes. Uh, I, I felt like that, that interview was like, yeah, I, I gave a kidney. There was nothing much to the story. And then afterwards I thought, but there is something to the story because I do have a friend named Max, and he's getting really tired, and he can't do much because he's about to need a transplant. And so then I added some comments to that interview saying, you know, I did what I did. People can do what they do, no pressure. But I have a friend named Max, and he needs a kidney, and he's waiting for a donor. Um, so I did put that there. I don't know if anybody because of that is doing anything, but I do have a friend that is going to be Max's donor, and so Max should have his kidney about a month and a half from now. Oh, and Max is a friend of yours. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned ethical debate. What was that about? Uh, the Canadian thing that came up when they were discussing it um, was mostly about should you put pressure on people to do it, who should pay to do it, and what about doctors telling patients they should. So come to that power struggle of you have to do this or somebody has to pay for it. Wow, you're amazing. Good I, I you. don't know about that. I love that, the story. <laughs> thank you. The heartwarming story of Dr. Philip Fisher, how he donated a kidney to a complete stranger. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Fisher. Thank Great you to both. have you on the program. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. Happy holidays, everyone. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.